How's it going? Happy Thursday. Or is it Thursday? Is it? It is. Well, this day we have a long weekend coming. I know, even though it's probably going to feel like every other day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know. But listen, I have to keep myself the faith alive somehow. And sometimes I delude myself into thinking that holidays matter. That's a fun, fun mental. Well, you, you know what, though? I, I, will, I will say, though, I, I have seen we, you know, we obviously have, you know, subscribers and they request itineraries. And we've been getting quite a few requests mm-hmm. for itineraries with I, I've seen people looking to use this weekend for road trips. I've also seen I, I saw, just saw a subscriber come through that that said that he uh, and his family were taking their son, I think, down to college. So I, I think, you know, maybe for you and I, we're not we're not really thinking of this as, oh, it's yeah. a weekend. But for there's definitely people out there. And, I, and I, I appreciate it, you know, that people are still taking this time to find a way to do road trips or staycations or romantic getaways or, you know, Definitely. dropping their kids off at school. So yeah, I appreciate it. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think having a kid just kind of makes uh, monuments feel more monumental. And when you are just sort of like floating untethered in your adult childless years, everything just has like <laughs> more existential, uh, like nonsense to it. And anyway, I will not Very get true. ahead of myself on this topic, but without further ado today, we're going to be talking with your friend, um, who is a restaurant owner in Austin, former restaurant owner in Austin Neeridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's going to give us a lot of really good insights into how the restaurant industry is faring through COVID, not just through the sort of initial how are we scrambling to make ends meet kind of um, kind of problem that we've mm-hmm. talked about before, but but on a more um, zoomed out level and, and what this means really for the future of industries like the restaurant industry and also for, um, for anything that kind of keeps the local spirit alive in any given place that we like to see. So Real quick before we uh, give Neeraj a call, I want to plug one thing that he mentioned to us uh, before, which is a really cool grant program that uh, Discover, the credit card company, is putting on. So if you go to discover.com, they have a program right now called um, Eat It Forward, I believe it's called. And it's all about giving uh, grants to Black-owned restaurants around the country. So you can nominate your favorite restaurant. You can um, make sure that they kind of have somebody looking out for them in these uncertain times. And uh, yeah, tell them we sent you. All right. So here we are. It is early September 2020. I don't know if the year is speeding by or if it's going at a snail's pace, but here we are. And just a couple of months before probably the most important election of our lifetimes. And one of the things that I really wanted to use today's podcast to talk about was not what's going on politically, but about something that somehow politics has, has a great impact on, which is the restaurant industry. And the reason why I I thought of this is because I was reading an article in the New York Times the other day about how the British government had started a program in August in which they were footing the bill for 50% 50 of every resident going out to restaurants. And this was something that the government in the UK was doing to support people going back and supporting restaurants. And it turned out they spent something like $567 million in a month to do this. but they understood the, the importance of these, you know, something like 1.8 million people in UK work at restaurants. And so the government understood that they had a role in 
in helping these restaurants and helping the economy kind of get back on its footing. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., we don't have any kind of program like that in, in reality. And there are something like 15 million people who, who work in the restaurant industry here. So I really wanted to learn more about, you know, why or, or not so much why, I guess, what could we be doing here in the U.S., especially to help the restaurant industry and people that work at restaurants, people that own restaurants, not just in the U.S., but all over the world, honestly, because because this is an industry that that needs our support. It's something that we know a lot about here at Localer. And so rather than Kate and I spending the next, you know, 45 minutes talking about how we think we can do this, I wanted to bring in someone that I consider an expert, a good friend of mine, longtime friend. His name is Neeraj Medirata, and he's from Houston. He's lived in Austin for, I guess, as long as I have, at least like 15 years total. Um, and I met him when I was actually starting my first business, a sneaker boutique in Austin, and he was starting his first business, a, a restaurant and wine bar in Austin called Apothecary. And he, he went on to own it for eight years, and it was easily my favorite restaurant in Austin over that eight years. And it was one of those special places that really just attaches you to a city and to a neighborhood. Um, so I wanted to bring in Neeraj to really just learn more about his experience owning a restaurant, learn about you know how his friends are doing that are in that the food and wine and drink industry, and then also just hear you know more about what he thinks we all can be doing as locals, as travelers to to support this industry that's so vital in, in making cities what they are. So thanks so much for joining us, Neeraj. Hey Neeraj. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey Kay. Um, and yes, it could be. September or it might still be March. I don't know. <laughs> 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 yeah, so so maybe maybe to start out by t- telling us, you know, I think a lot of people out there have this fanciful idea of one day opening owning their own restaurant or wine bar or cafe. So kind of maybe you can just start by sharing your kind of origin story, like what made you go into the space and um, you know, just start there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such an interesting convo to have right now because it's one of the things that maybe we're discounting uh, of being kind of threatened by COVID is the notion of risk takers and who is willing to take a leap either now or in the future to chase their passions with what's going on with the virus and what's going on economically. But uh, so, yeah, I started working in the corporate world uh I went to school here in UT Austin, and then four or five years later, I realized, hey, I want to make a jump, and I want to try something that I care about, that I'm interested in. And so I decided to jump into the restaurant industry, but I had zero experience in the restaurant industry, uh, no experience in the wine industry. And um, I, I definitely wasn't confident enough to go out and try to raise capital. So I was the prototype bootstrapping, risk taker, and creating a restaurant in a very shoestring budget. And um, so you had never worked in a restaurant, but when you started your own restaurant? <laughs> that is that is correct. Yeah, wow. Because it's as crazy as it sounds. Anybody sure. who's never worked in one, I don't think realizes that it's actually, it's pretty hard. There's a little steep learning curve to get, you know, get your feet wet in that. And I cannot but, imagine but, being in that position. On but, but, to, but, but to his credit, I, I, I bet he had eaten at a restaurant before. <laughs> As many things in my life, they're decided on some sort of romantic notion or whim. And uh, I had the benefit of growing up in what's not seen as a great city for a lot of reasons, but to me is an incredible city, which is Houston. 
And I, I think it is, and it has continued to emerge as one of the best dining scenes in the country. And so that influenced me a lot, the places I grew up going to, the places I would go back to when I was in school here in Austin. And I think I took that notion. I was just like, this sounds fun, even though it was extremely oversimplified in my head. <laughs> but that was kind of the impetus to say, hey, I want to create a place like I grew up having. And mm-hmm. I'm sure both of you guys are familiar with Houston. I know Joe definitely is. But there's this area in Houston, it's Montrose and Westheimer. It's this incredible corridor that's stayed true to these like all day cafes. You can go, you can get a coffee, you can get a bite to eat, you can get a glass of wine. It ironically has kind of an Austin feel to it. It's very artsy uh, and it's very almost old school French salon style where people are talking and having great combos. And that was really the emphasis for me to open something that's largely influenced by my hometown. Yeah, so what, when, when you were starting it, like you had never worked in a restaurant before. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I think it's, you know, I, I look at this situation, most of us haven't been through a pandemic before. So, you know, it's an industry where you jump into kind of knowing that there were a lot of unknowns. Yeah. And just even thinking beyond just like COVID and all that stuff, like what, when you were starting your restaurant, what were some of the unknowns that, that you knew going in, it was like, okay, I'm just gonna have to learn how to do this. And then what were some of the surprises that even after you got started, you were like, oh, wow, you're, you know, a year or two years in, you're dealing, all of a sudden dealing with rapid change. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there were the obvious unknowns for sure, Joe. I mean, there's, you know, the simplicity of, oh, I have to lease this space and then I have to build it out. I know absolutely nothing about construction at the lease. I know nothing about commercial restaurant construction. And then there is, you know, the one benefit I had of working in the corporate world for four or five years, even just kind of niched into finance, there was, you should always have an industry expert. So that was something on the top of my head, which was, how do I find and surround myself with people who know what's going on in this industry and that I can learn from and work with? The thing I didn't expect is this has to be one of the few top cities in terms of rapid growth. And we talk about that in terms of population growth, right? Like people are moving to the city. I think what I didn't consider is the neighborhoods change in two to three years in Austin where they might change in five to 10 years somewhere else. And when you own something on a street that feels nascent and it's desolate and you're bringing something new to it and people are gonna love it, you look up three years later and that entire street has completely changed over. Mm -hmm. And so how do you constantly adapt, reinvent yourself, improve yourself. And, you know, you knew this from coming in, but we kind of redesigned that space. We redid the menu every few years. We redid the wine program. And and that might not seem obvious, but if you're in the details, I mean, it was it was constantly adapting to that volatility and changing. Yeah. Changing with the neighborhood. Yeah. And did you have, just out of curiosity, like, did you have a, a pretty capable grip on, say, wine in general? Like, you know, when you went to a restaurant before that, what did you (laughs) consider when ordering, picking out a bottle of wine? (laughs) No, I didn't. You know, the funny thing is I started learning about wine as when I left college and I went into this kind of old school industry of finance where there was a lot of, you know, corporate dinners and boondoggles and uh, wine being thrown around that I had no idea of. And it took me five to 10 years later to look back and be like, Oh, wow. We were, that's what we were drinking. And that's what was being spent at the table. But I didn't. It, it was actually one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that 
I thought myself taking some classes and going through and getting some education was the right way forward and hiring an operating partner, having great people on my team. But I didn't ever have a wine director. And for the majority of those eight years, except for maybe two or three years, I knew the most in that place about wine. But <laughs> I didn't have much of an education. And the funniest thing is I left the wine, you know, I left that industry in 2017. I would say I've learned more in the last three years being removed from the wine industry than I did when I was when I was in it because I've actually had time to study and be patient with it, digest things. And so, what made you decide to leave the industry to sell apothecary? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't go into it with any business partner. So I think at the end of eight years, you realize that you're kind of the only constant. You know, you have a you come through with a lot of a lot of great people come through. Uh, any restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. Chefs, servers, line cooks, etc. But at some point, they're going to go on and make their way into the world. They're going to open their own restaurants. They're going to work at the next place. They're going to switch industries. They're going to yeah. school. And so there was that was that definitely that part of it. I think the other thing is what we were alluding to before. Eight years on a small street in Austin. I mean, it completely changed the identity of that neighborhood and the city. And so. I was at this really interesting crossroad where I was like, okay, I have to, again, for maybe the fourth time, reinvest and reinvent this concept. Or this is my time where, you know what, I've had an amazing run, I've loved what I've done, but I also have kind of a network that I've created where I can hop to something else now. And that mm. was the decision I made at the time. Yeah. So wait, indulge me just a little bit, if you don't mind, give me some examples. Yeah. So we're talking about, Apothecary was on Burnett Road, correct? Yes. Correct. Okay. So if anybody who is listening doesn't know, Burnett is like this classic Austin street. It's like heavily featured in Days and Confused. Yeah. And yeah, for a yeah. long time was right. home to like, you know, it was in the, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a destination in and of itself. It was sort of like a throughway and it had some like old school classic places on it, mm -hmm. top notch and what have you. But now when you go on to Burnett Road, it's like every you know, destination for restaurants, for bars, for whatever is mm -hmm. there. It's hard oh. to find parking. It's very, it's become very trendy. The real estate market for homeowners, I think has probably changed pretty drastically too. What, what about that was negative? Like what, um, what did you not, what didn't serve you about the sort of the escalation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so on one hand, you might view that as a positive thing, right? All of a sudden, this is kind of booming, and there's a lot more interest on this side of town. But one of the phenomenons that I think holds true in Austin is that on the plus side, we really care about our neighborhoods. On the other side, people are a little hesitant to drive across town unless it's something completely unique. Mm -hmm. I think there's a few places in the city that get to be a destination spot. First place that comes to mind is just East, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. We even. 10 years ago, we were willing to drive all the way into the east side, which there wasn't much development in terms of restaurants mm -hmm. to eat at just seats. Mm -hmm. And so I think that held true. The, so people weren't necessarily willing to come to Burnet to join us or other restaurants. And so it felt static in some ways. Like, yeah, there's more stuff here, but now we've just sliced this, we've sliced the pie even thinner between new people and we're still kind of fighting for the same type of crowd because we're not drawing in people from all parts of Boston. Interesting. Yeah. And so I, I think everyone's sales kind of took a hit and you figure out how you want to adapt to that and what you can do to counteract that. And for us, that was just like, it just happened to be also something in my personal life where I was like, 
no, I, I think I'm, uh, this is not my time. It was me. time, yeah. It was time. And because I had changed two or three times before, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, Kate, we've all lived in different cities. Like, we've we've lived in cities where we've seen some of that change happen. Like, I remember living in D.C. before I moved back to Austin 11 years ago and watching this change happen. And I lived in the 11th Street Northwest, and basically it's... It's it was kind of situated between Dupont Circle, which is the you know well known kind of LGBTQ neighborhood in in DC, and Howard University, which is the historically black college in DC. So kind of halfway between those two, and what happened is, while I lived there for a few years, I saw that the the gentrification started coming more further further east, like closer and closer to Howard University. And and what happened was it went from being this neighborhood that felt like this great cross section of D.C. and how D.C. had been maybe for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And it turned into, you know, this kind of race of how quickly can this neighborhood like look the part of a very trendy neighborhood that could be in maybe even any city. You know where there's a, there was a there was a big target development. There were there was a, a you know popular brunch spots with patio seating and all these things that were new and were exciting. But at the same time, if you were a local business owner, let's say on U Street, and that was happening, and you had been in business for a decade, and you're watching this happening, you're like, wait a minute, does where this neighborhood is is where my neighborhood is headed the same place as where my business is headed? And you start seeing that maybe there's like a divergent path where the neighborhood isn't isn't making you and your business a part of the virtuous cycle of growth in the neighborhood. Like across the street yeah. from Apothecary, I remember Pint House Pizza opened, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, there's nothing nothing wrong with Pint House Pizza. It's fine, but it 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 doesn't really have a particular point of view, you know. Like Pint House Pizza could pick up and be anywhere in Austin, whereas Apothecary. That was I didn't even live in Rosedale, the neighborhood where Apothecary was. But whenever I would go to Rosedale, I would immediately associate it with Apothecary and with a certain set of the omelet tree was there. You know, there was a certain right. set of businesses that you associate with the neighborhood. Whereas the new types of places that were going were like places where oh, the the numbers told them to put it in on Burnett Road. It wasn't anything about a connection to the neighborhood itself. I this is such an interesting thing that you raised, and there's two things that popped up in my head. I mean. I think what you're saying, too, is that at some point, the development becomes very generic plug-and-play. And I love Pine House, but I, I see what you're saying, too, with maybe this concept of fit under And this is one of the things that's interesting to me, is that if we get into this scenario where we start to see more places shutter because lack of government action, then this is what we're going to see in our neighborhoods and our cities, which is either national chains swooping in and taking places, and or well-capitalized restaurant groups, which kind of have a homogenous blueprint of what they create, filling our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are at risk of losing the things that really give our cities and our neighborhoods these like, strong sense of identity and strong anchor. Yeah. And so the, the other thing I will say, and this is to Kate's question earlier, like what, you know, what kind of made you leave? And this isn't a personal thing, but I think this always gets lost in the discussion of the restaurant industry. It's not so black and white. It's not so stark in contrast. There's gray area. But I think we often look at restaurants as a business 
pursuit. And in a lot of ways, it's a creative pursuit. And mm -hmm. it's like when you see an artist go five albums deep and then they've completely changed their sound, we accept that. They've grown, they've changed. But sometimes in the construct of a physical space and restaurant and, and a menu, you don't get to achieve that as easily, right? Or people are like, what happened to Clark's Oyster Bar? They're doing pasta now? Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're yeah. Italian now? How can they that are? No, but you know, <laughs> they do have a pasta. Dish. Your, your reaction was to the same. For example. Okay. Okay. We can edit that but out. I think that, like, you know, when that, when that creative life or that, where you're ready to evolve creatively, you know, sometimes that's the end of that mm -hmm, story as well. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should look at things when they close and that's, and that went through that one. Well, sure. you know what? And I think, and here's, here's two things that, that, that come up. One is, you know, it's, I'm just thinking about the story that I just read that Octane Coffee, Octane Coffee was a popular local coffee shop in Atlanta and very popular. It, it was known as a coffee shop that helped kind of introduce the like, you know, that like kind of like boutique, cool, local coffee experience in Atlanta and um, Revelator Coffee. I think they're like a conglomerate or they're not a conglomerate, but they're like a, you know, like a, a coffee group or sort. They make their own coffee. They purchased Octane a few years back. And slowly over the last few years, they've closed the Octane Coffee locations and turned them into their locations. So Atlanta now, they just, just this month, I think the last Octane Coffee closed. So it, the, the, this brand that Atlantans, you know, had such, you know, alert, you know, attachment to it has over the last few years has died. So even though maybe the owners of Octane got paid, they make money on the sale to this, this conglomerate. The, the people who live in that city now, when they drive by that, they're not going to have the same type of attachment to it, right? So I think that that's one of the things when you're talking about government action, I think that's one of the things that what's interesting is, you know, you look at something like technology, like there's a, I mean, the government is imposing its will right now on TikTok. The government is saying TikTok must sell to a U.S. company or it's got to not no longer do business in the United States. So technology is an industry where there's things like antitrust legislation and oh, Facebook and Microsoft, these companies can't be so, so big. But in restaurants, people don't really think about how, you know, a restaurant group taking over all the restaurants in a city or, or, or multiple cities and eliminating, you know, small, you know, locally owned places, that in a way is its own form of imposing certain conditions on communities and cities that the locals themselves aren't, you know, necessarily going to benefit from. So I, I think in a lot of ways, along with just, you know, surviving this pandemic and the government support that is needed for that, for restaurants, I also think that there may need to be some type of lens where neighborhood associations even get more active in trying to protect, you know, the institutions in their neighborhoods, you know, from things like, you know, not just gentrification, but also just like, absorbent rents and stuff like we have this issue in Austin with music venues that are probably going to go out of business because the rents are going so high. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like, are, are, you know, someone could argue, well, that's just a free market working. And it's like, well, if the free market replaces a music venue with something that isn't a music venue and at over time that hinders Austin's reputation as the live music capital and, and then ends up hurting hotel occupancy, you could, you could argue that that one music venue that's going out of business because the rent's going so high is not just about protecting its own business, but it's about protecting an entire ecosystem. And I think restaurants very much 
fit that bill as well. I mean, sorry, Kate, please. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say there's, there's definitely going to be uh, an entire subject of a college course in like 10 years. Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Hopefully by Scott Galloway. Uh, Yes. Please continue, Nerd. No, I I think as kind of a zoom out, you know, when we're talking about restaurants and with a relation to local or it's one of the reasons I love what you guys are doing. And I think you do what you do so well is that when we're traveling, whether it's the first time to a city or the 10th time, to Joe's point about kind of identity, I think our notions and impressions of the city are largely dependent on those interactions with people in the service industry and visiting these types of places. Mm -hmm. So if you're going somewhere for the first time, you throw your bags in your hotel or Airbnb, it's like your interaction with that barista at the coffee shop you walk to or the bartender giving you a recommendation on what where to go next after dinner that night or the concierge at the hotel. This really is the essence and vibe you feel about the city right mm-hmm. like that's your takeaway is this place cool is it chill is it stuffy or if that key if that music venue leaves red river and then a bunch of corporate developers come in that landscape changes well now austin looks and feels like a different city and what's your thought and concept of what austin is so i think in this conversation of we're worried about placing oops, sorry we're worried about you know restaurants and music venues closing it threatens something much larger. Yeah, it's the entire makeup and identity, and like you said, the ecosystem. Well, and, and Kate, you live in Seattle, which is a city that is, you know, there have been. I've seen articles with restaurants hers in Seattle talking about. It's like the pricing here, you know, for rent is just ridiculous. Like we're not going to be able to maintain this anymore if the prices mm-hmm. keep going up and up. What have you seen like in Seattle where have you have you seen any of your favorite places go away or have you seen any owners or chefs of places you like talking about, you know, what's happening and how they're being replaced and what they're being replaced with? Yeah, it's it's pretty varied. I really think it just depends on luck from what I've seen anecdotally. There's definitely places that I enjoy that have that have cut their losses and are out of the industry now are gone. Um, there are places that kind of seem like they are living on borrowed time. It's like, okay, you mm-hmm. were not necessarily even profitable before this all hit. Like mm-hmm. you, like I'm thinking of one place in particular that um, they had like a great location in my neighborhood, this pizza beer spot, and then they put a second location in like what's effectively Seattle's South Congress district. So like, you know, the highest rent, the mecca of like, where travelers go to feel like locals and everybody kind of coexists and you were just like okay i can't i don't understand how you are profiting off of that it seems like you're probably bleeding money you were doing that before the pandemic started and now you are open you know you have like six tables on a patio how are you dealing with this rent what i'm seeing in other places i have a friend who owns a bar that's been around for like 13 or 14 years and it's in a neighborhood that is um, very very residential and the the owners of that building have waived the rent for that bar which is great because yeah. if that didn't happen then this person would not have yeah. an industry anymore and couldn't couldn't take any time to try out new experiments in the Mm -hmm. age of COVID and figure out what serves people now. You know, there's no room to make mistakes unless Mm -hmm. there's like a benevolent daddy Warbucks Mm -hmm. waiting in the wings that's there to help you out. But so that kind of, I mean, without being, I don't, I don't mean this as pessimistically as it might come across at first blush, but you know, I was having a similar conversation about this with a friend recently and she had this 
this same sort of like, um, you know, not great outlook, which is like, you know, the big guys are going to come in, restaurant groups are going, like Octane's uh, purchasers mm. are going to come in and just change the identity of this um, because they have this opportunity. And there is an air of like inevitability about it all, right? Mm -hmm. Because right. an epidemiologist will tell you that a pandemic was always going to come. It was really just a question of when, you know, it could have been five years ago. It could be five years in the future. It was going to happen and it happened now. At the same time, we have this weird, you know, like too big to fail thing happening with certain people who are profiting, like, you know, the Amazons of mm -hmm. the uh, e-commerce space or the, you know, whatever. I, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a restaurant equivalent that I'm not thinking of. So anyway, all of this to say, what do y'all think is the 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 thing that we as consumers can do because there is this air of like well it's 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 too big it's escalated too far we probably could have predicted this happening and now i'm just one person what do i do to keep yeah. my favorite places alive i mean i i think what you're saying is so true in terms of you know this is just the catchphrase that's been going around too which is this is COVID has been an accelerant mm -hmm. not a change agent mm -hmm. right so to your point kate some of this stuff was inevitable and already in the works whether we're talking about a restaurant that was bound to kind of go out unfortunately or a whole neighborhood changing over or whatever mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know before we say what we can do it is i harbor a, a fair degree of frustration that we as the general populace we would help anyways because we care about our local restaurants and we care about the server we know and love or the barista at our morning coffee shop but the fact that we're having to shoulder this burden as citizens who are potentially also in a tough place right mm -hmm. now is frustrating and so the one thing that i'm seeing that may be a bright spot is the restaurants act which right now has one third of congressional approval um, it's $120 billion that's dedicated solely for the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so I know we're in an election season. I know we're all worn out. I know we all feel some type of way about sending an email to a senator or a congresswoman or whatever it might be. But I think we have to. Like, you have to put your gap, you have to put your foot on the pedal mm -hmm. and keep it pressed there. So if you just type in Google, restaurants, plural, act. Um, you can sign a petition, you can email whoever your local state representative is. If this goes through, that is massive because that's going to help maybe half a million restaurants. Like a half a million restaurants may yeah. be able to make it into 2021 if this happens. So wow, that's, that is one actionable. Man, thanks for telling us about that. I feel like, Kate, I feel like that's something that Localer should get really behind and, and you know get our community really engaged with. I agree because I mean, su supporting your favorite place that's down the street is one thing and it's, you know, it weighs heavily on all of us. But then there's the other piece that's like, well, I love to go to this certain place when I go to Austin. I don't live in Austin anymore. How am I going to support it from afar mm -hmm. or, you know, any number of destinations? Well, it takes a lot of the burden off of me as a consumer if I can nudge my congressman in the direction of, yeah. of passing a bill like that. Yeah, and I'm thinking I'm thinking yeah. more even about, you know, this, there's this conversation happening about, oh, is New York going to die? You know, is this the end of New York? And and I feel like without people actually saying it, I feel like so much of that stems from the fact that 
so much of the, the cultural currency in New York is in the food scene. And the fact that, you know, up to 50, 60 percent of the restaurants in New York may not make it through this, you know, is just just harrowing, especially thinking about the fact that so many of these places are trying to, you know, they're trying to pivot and have more outdoor seating and do takeaway and things like that. But when, when the winter comes around, those things are going to go down. You know, like people are not going to be sitting on patios in New York City in the middle of winter unless there's some kind of, you know, plan that's going to allow for that to happen in a warm way, safe way, too. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, you know, this act, it sounds not only like important for for restaurants, but it sounds like, you know, there's a certain amount of time that we have to try to get this thing through before we start seeing places shuttering like really rapidly. I mean, I, I know that Copenhagen's doing very well right now. But it gets cold as hell there. And it's so cold there. So I can't imagine people are going to be wanting to sit outside, of, even if they're at Noma, you know, one of the world's best restaurants. Like, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to sit outside there in negative 15 degree weather. So the, the, these restaurants are going to need our support because, you know, not just because they need patrons, they need customers, but they also need money to you know hold the line especially if they don't always have like you said kate they don't have daddy warbucks allowing them you know rent abatement or forgiveness for things like that in the interim Mm. i think we should just convert a lot of restaurants in those colder places to raw bars and then the tables outside will just be like frozen solid all the time in the (laughs) fish right there it's perfect i think it's a great idea okay so i have a question um i hope this isn't too far off base but so we're talking about you know supporting these things that we don't get to have the same relationship with that we had before because we don't get to travel as often because we don't get to um you know have the same like you know, somebody knows my name in another city kind of feeling about about a lot of these places right now. Neeraj, if I'm correct, I believe you're in a, a long distance relationship. You're in Austin and your partner is in Paris. That's correct. Yes. So say <laughs> more about that. Right How's that going? <laughs> Tell me everything. Yeah, uh, I think it. Well, to back up, yes, um, I live here in Austin. My girlfriend is French. She's born and raised in Marseille, but she works and lives in Paris currently. Um, And that's where we met, we met in Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, So the obvious is it's tough because there is an effective travel ban on both sides. um, And we have not been able to see each other since March, which is, you know, going on half a year now. Wow. Um, And we actually are in a somewhat young relationship. We just hit a year together. So now the majority of that actually has been spent apart, which is wild, right? (laughs) But, you know, what I'm learning is if as challenging as that is, there's probably one or two silver linings. And I think that's nice to discuss. The The funny thing is I posted a picture of us on an Instagram story the other day. And I had two people independent who I actually don't know in person, but we just follow each other on Instagram. And both of these people were like, hey, I'm in a long distance relationship. This was nice to see, and I was like, okay, so there's a lot, there's a lot of other people who are kind of going through this right now as well. So, um, you know, the, the first thing that I was considering, and my girlfriend's name is Miriam, by the way, is that whether you're in a young relationship like us, or maybe you're four or five years into a relationship, this has just been a chance for us to, in some ways, uh, have much deeper and much more real conversations in such a positive way. Right? Mm-hmm. We are missing out right now on the, the 
ability to go out for dinner or go pick up a coffee together or go catch a movie like Tenet or you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But on the other hand, because of the screen time that, that we're communicating through, we're talking about things maybe we wouldn't have talked about till year two or three in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And from that aspect, I think it's really positive. And it's brought about this real sense of maturity in our relationship, which to me is amazing. And, and I really enjoy that. Yeah. That's well, great. And, and, and building on that, what has it been like in terms of, you know, I, I know France initially was one of the hard hit countries kind of, it was like Italy and Spain and France and Europe. And, and then they kind of came out of the recovery much sooner than the U S has obviously. And, and, and are, are starting to recover, I guess. And so what has it been like in terms of just, you know, even using the, the internet and social media, like watching, you know, what kind of experience you have here in the U.S. versus what she's able to do and what she's experiencing over there in, in, in Europe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing is she spent a lot of time back home in the south of France. Right? <laughs> so that's the Mediterranean, yeah. which for all of us, like, great. You know, Taco Deli is open until 8 p.m. That's my win for the year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But the south of France is really close to northern Italy, which was a major hotspot, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I think they just have a tendency to understand that an adult is making a decision, they go with it. They're willing in, in a more communal sense to, to adhere to certain things. Whereas I think as Americans, we're so much more skeptical of our government kind of always thinking we can outsmart the next person so we take things into our own hands i think they have actionable plans and they listen to them and the frustrating thing for me so that's what i've seen Mm -hmm. is that they just have actionable plans and people adhere to it i think the frustrating thing to hear whether it's from miriam or friends who live in places like copenhagen or amsterdam Mm -hmm. or even my friends who live in asia that i'm still in touch with are like what is y'all's plan (laughs) i'm just like there the plan is there is no plan we send kids to school and universities and maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So that's been a real challenge too, to see that other people are implementing things and it's working and we're still kind of at this square one of what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and this is in part kind of indicative of, I feel like there's this larger trend happening where, you know, again, like you said, it's an accelerant, not a change agent necessarily. So, remote work was already something that was on the rise. People living more kind of transient lives was already on the rise. So what for, for you as someone who has lived in different places, lives in Austin, has a girlfriend in, in Paris, you know, how, how has COVID made you think about, you know, your own, you know, sense of place and, and, you know, whenever travel restrictions are lifted, like, how are you thinking about like, are you are you going to continue being a resident of Austin in the United States? Or are you going to live in Paris? Like, are you going to split the year? Like, what what are you thinking? And, and has COVID kind of played a role in how you're thinking about it? Yeah, I love that question, and I, I kind of have a few thoughts in my head regarding that. I, I would love to wrap one more thing about uh, the long distance phenomenon. Please. Right and what I'm what I'm finding really interesting and. Um, Kate, I don't know your, your relationship status, so I'm just going to use Joe as an example. But um, how crazy is it right now that our energies vary so much, not just throughout the day, but between who we're with? So I'm not even thinking about relationships. Think about, like, you read an article that made you feel some type of way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's about the virus, maybe it's about the election, and you shoot it to a friend. But 
maybe your friend wasn't ready to read that article. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like maybe they're having a good day or they're on a work call and they like they don't have time for it. So one of the phenomenons is she can be having a great day, but I'm just not feeling super optimistic that day. Mm-hmm. And imagine, I, I can imagine that scenario in person because you can kind of read and feel each other's energy. Mm-hmm. But when you're far away, it's so much more challenging. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. And so I think one of the positives out of this is that we've really learned to read each other and do our best to be patient and protect the other person's energy. So we had this the other day where I was just kind of feeling down about my industry and what the next few months look like for me. But she was having a great day, an optimistic day. She had a great day out in Paris. And I was like, no, I'm not bringing this up because like, I want to protect the space that she's in mm-hmm. mentally and stuff. So you know, I think that's an interesting part about long distance. Wow, that, is that we're learning to read each other. That sounds like a skill that is is not as common as, as it needs to be, but it sounds like empathy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. A basic sense of it. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. So how are you? So how are you thinking about? You know, what's what's your what's your kind of like? If you know the country necessarily doesn't have a COVID plan, but but you have one for yourself, maybe. What what's what are you seeing on the horizon beyond this? Yeah. I mean, I'm really considering um, the fact that we can't. And I've come to experience this before because I have been a freelancer for the last three years. Is that we do have the ability to work from somewhere else. And the funny thing is, I work in events experiential marketing mm-hmm. now, which is a fancy phrase for events, right? Um, and so part of my job is to be somewhere physically, but the lead up and the front and back end of my work can essentially be done anywhere. So I'm taking that in consideration a lot more. I mean, half of my year last year was spent between New York and Paris, some for events, but some, I realized, hey, I can work remotely. I think companies are coming around to that. What I think is way more interesting than the personal notion and tying this back to kind of restaurants and retail is my hope is that people will move and live in places because they care about the culture and the community and they're simply not moving there for the job. And I want to pick on Austin for a second. Mm -hmm. I think you could look at 10 to 15 years where you realize people moved here for a reason. They love the music culture. They love the dining scene. They love the liberal mindset. But then we saw people moving here for these great tech jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And what we realized was that as much as they're coming in with great discretionary income, things like the music industry are in the backdrop. They're happy to have it, but they're not moving here necessarily to support it directly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's led to things kind of deteriorating. And to Kate's point earlier, maybe it was already kind of downtrending, right? Yeah. So my hope is that if we're realizing you do have remote work, that you live in a place where you want to support the culture and the community and that this is going to continue to prop up mm-hmm. in some ways the cultural assets that these places bring and present. Yeah. Well, well, well said. Well said. Yeah. Jinx. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, as we uh, start to wrap up, I want to ask you, Neera, a question um, that hopefully is a little more of a fun one to, to discuss, which yeah. is, Right now, in these uncertain times when we aren't really dining out, or if we do, we're doing so really selectively, what's your favorite go-to takeout meal in Austin right now? Oh, that is a great question. Uh, There's this place, it's a trailer, it's in North Austin, called Ranch Hand. I love it. 
they're not well known, but they're sourcing everything literally uh, from a Texas ranch. And so writing this uh, down. <laughs> yes, I um, I had a project for three months static in San Francisco in 2018, and I was just I was subsisting completely off Mission Burrito, and so this has been my closest thing. They do incredible burritos, they do great steak and uh, meat dishes, but they also do a lot of vegan, vegetarian friendly places. So Ranch Hand, it's a trailer. I can't imagine how hard it is to be operating one of those right now. Mm. But if you can support those, that's my plug. Awesome. Uh, they're on Uber Eats too. So yeah. great intel. <laughs> what about you? Well, and, and as a follow up to that. You've been, you, you, we haven't even really dived into this. We'll have to do this on another call. I, I want to hear, uh, real quick, I want to hear Neeraj share what are, what are, what's a red wine and what's a white wine that is, is fairly accessible that you would recommend? Because it, but, but what he hasn't really said is while he didn't have all the sommelier training and all that stuff, and as far as I'm concerned, like, Anything that I know about wine comes from Neerage. Like going to Apothecary every week for eight years taught me everything I know about wine. And even in the year since, he's continued to share things on his Instagram and whatnot. So, um, yeah. So, what are what are a couple of wines that you think you know, whether you're in New York or or Seattle or Austin, like are fairly accessible? Yeah, that's a great question, and this is always a fun one. Um, red wine, and it's something Joe and I actually have shared and been talking about recently. Um, there's a region in France called the Beaujolais. The grape is Gamay. And not to be confused with Beaujolais Nouveau, which is a totally different beast. But Beaujolais, which is produced by, uh, there's a ton of people producing this wine, there's a ton of people importing this wine, which means you can get it anywhere from Whole Foods to please support your local independent wine shops if you can, not at the mm-hmm. grocery store. <laughs> but uh, that is a phenomenal red wine because it is extremely versatile. It's a little light. It's a little funky. You should chill it. It pairs well with a burger, which I think is the ideal pairing, but it's great to drink on its own. Um, so if you're looking for something in between a Pinot Noir, which is nice and light, uh, and a Cabernet, which is a little heavy and maybe a little too hearty for even early September, that's a great wine to drink. Uh, it's also, uh, in this kind of joking, if you want to uh, go to a wine bar and, and let the staff know that you know what you're doing, but, but for for those of you listening, by the way, there is uh, Neeraj and I are about three miles apart in Austin, and there's a crazy thunderstorm happening. So I, I heard the thunder in in Neeraj's background, and then about <laughs> three seconds later, I heard it in my background. <laughs> Gotten down the hatches, folks. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, okay, so, so you said a Beaujolais Gamay, and, and Gamay just for those, it's a uh, spelled G A M A Y. Yeah. Definitely. So Beaujolais, again, it's a light red wine. It's something you should chill, but it's super food friendly and it's great to drink on its own. So it's just a really versatile wine and they're very affordable. You can get a great Beaujolais for 25 bucks. If you want to spend 45 bucks, you're going to get an even better one potentially. Not that cost is always correlated to how good something is, but it's an excessively priced wine. And then the other one I would say is Chenin Blanc, which is one of my favorite white grapes. Um, I think a lot of people, when they first start getting into white wine, and rightfully so, they get into Sauvignon Blancs and drink great things like Sancerre, which is fantastic. But Chenin Blanc is a grape that can be produced in so many different ways. Uh, it can be really light, it can be very autumnal and hearty. And so I, I don't want to give you a specific region or rec, 
I would just simply say, this is a great you can explore for the next 10 years. And if you find a Chenin Blanc that you like from a certain region, jot it down and then keep exploring different regions. It's a really fun kind of journey for, for white wine in that specific region. Awesome. Nice. Great intel. Thank you so much. And yeah. thanks for being here with us. We really appreciate your time, your um, your insights, and your your humor. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And we... And, and we, and we, 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 we are very hopeful that you're able to make it to Paris soon. We don't, you know, it's, 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 you know, Paris is probably one of the only places where the plane ride going from, from here to there is a little bit even, even better than the one. Normally when I fly back to Austin, I feel like I'm getting the better end of the deal wherever I'm coming from. But Paris is one of the few places in the world where I'm like, okay, that's probably a good flight to head over there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, yes, be... Paris is always a good decision. Sure. <laughs> awesome. All right, Nero. All right. Well, all right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much Stay guys. safe Thanks out there. Yeah. Y'all don't go outside in yeah. a thunderstorm. Ooh, <laughs> heard that one. Speaking of. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs>